Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Maybe you've never aspired to write a book. Maybe you don't consider yourself a writer. But as you get older, you realize that someone needs to write down the family stories that have been passed on for generations before they are lost completely. You want to share what makes your family unique. Leave the words as a legacy. Bond your family together in a unique way. It might feel like a daunting task. Where do you start? How far back do you go? What if you don't know all the details? What if there are some stories that might be hard to tell and hard for family members to read? Do you include them? Today, Dave and I want to help you get started writing your family story. Not a memoir, but a family history. We've got tips for where to start, what not to dwell on, and how to write something that has meaning for you and your family. But before we get started, Dave, let's back up and talk about where we've made progress this week. Dave, where have you made progress? I am going to put the cliche up, which is working out. So our last child is a freshman at Wheaton North. And so one of the questions was, as we approached the first day of school, which was last week, was, do I take her every day or does she catch a ride with her neighbor, with the neighbors, right? But I decided that A, this is our last child, and B, I don't want to miss out on any conversations with her over the next four years. So I said, I'll be glad to take you. So we have to be at Wheat North roughly around seven o'clock or a little bit after every morning. So I decided I was going to start a new regimen, which was to go from there directly to where I work out, which is only a few blocks away, which I've done now. So I want to do this every other day. And so far I have. So I guess that's progress. That is great progress. So we'll check in in another month or so and see how it's going. All right. So how about you? Oh my gosh, Dave. I had so much trouble trying to identify where I've made progress this week, but I guess that I'm gaining progress in not stressing out about my son in his new job. I have so much anxiety about him not doing his work well. And what what if he messes up? Are they going to fire him? And is he working the right amount of hours? Are they knowing when he gets up in the morning? And just all this anxiety. And so I'm I'm trying to let it go. And I think I'm getting a little bit better, but I'm still not great. <laughs> that is hard to let go. It's it's so easy to give a, a pat answer like, well, you'll figure it out. But I always say that that the hardest years of raising kids have been in their 20s, right? Is getting them emancipated on their own and they're making decisions about work, making decisions whether to complete college making decisions about drinking, they're making decisions about relationships. And man, it's so easy to to go, I'm going to control, not, not that you're trying to control, but worry about everything, which I guess is a form of control. So I think that even that you're aware of it is huge progress. I'm trying to be aware of it. And I think it's more difficult when your kids come back to live at home, right? Because I know what time he's going to bed and what time he's waking up. If he was in his own apartment right now, then I wouldn't be nearly as worried. So I'm looking forward to the day when he moves out and is fully emancipated, as you said so well. And so what you don't know won't hurt you. That's right. All right, Dave, I'm excited about today's episode. So many people who are part of the Journey 66 community are interested in writing about their family history. And it's not because they necessarily perceive themselves as a writer or an author or even want to publish a book for the mass market, but they do want to publish their family story and get it to the family so that their story isn't lost forever. So today we want to help people learn how to begin and where not to get stuck and how to move forward. So 
The first point of ours, if you are interested in writing your family story, is to know the difference between a family history and a memoir. So, Dave, what are the differences between family history and a memoir? Well, I think the first difference is in a memoir, it's it's the first person singular. It's I. And you're writing a story through the lens of, of well, it's your lens, right? So it's your perspective and your memories. That's, that's what a memoir is. And you package it, no matter how you structure it, structure it in terms of the I. And I think in a family history, if you're writing a family history or the legacy of a family, you're more of a third person narrator. So you're, it's more historical. And, and I'm just telling you that it's probably harder to make a history interesting in terms of to really tell the stories because stories have tension and we'll get into that in just a little bit. But and it's also generally chronological, like with the memoir, I, I don't think you, you don't necessarily have to write the memoir chronologically, but often if you're going to write a history, there's going to be a starting point of the history. And so you start there and you really move forward through time. How about you? What are your thoughts on the on the differences between a family history and a memoir? Well, when we talk about memoirs, we often talk about there needing to be a meta narrative. And what we mean by that is that there is a theme that ties all of your stories together so that you're selecting really specific stories that relate to a specific idea or a specific theme. So you're not putting everything in that has happened in your life, but something very specific, little kernels that relate to this overall theme. And a historical account of your family, like you said, is going to be chronological. It's going to be more far reaching and it's going to cover a longer period of time. And it's not necessarily going to have that one theme. There may be some stories that crop up, like maybe there's an immigration story that that crops up or a religious theme, like if religion was very important to your family, things like that might crop up, but you won't need that to tie every single aspect of your family story together. I think you're absolutely right. And I'll just add this. You could use a meta theme or a meta narrative as a way to structure what goes in and what doesn't go in. I mean, you could do that. Let's just say Often religion is a reason why people want to write a family history. So they want to tell the story of faith, how it was passed down, or it might be the story of entrepreneurship, or maybe you're in a military family, and there's some, some themes, and that's how you want to structure it. So I would say, just to counter, counter what I just said earlier, I, I think that you, you could have a meta-narrative that helps you decide what goes in and what doesn't. But generally, all memoirs have that. But I would say not all family histories or legacy books have that. Often it is chronological, and it's not a junk drawer, but the stories are strung together through chronology and through the people in that story. I recall that one memoir that we helped write about a businessman and Part of his memoir was a historical account of his family's immigration from, I think it was Lithuania to South Africa, and then his immigration from South Africa to the United States. So that was a theme that he used to tell his own story, but there was a historical component. So I guess all that to say is that there is kind of this blurry line between memoir and history. Like, Memoirs can have history in them, but they're usually first person. In the case of that one that we worked on, it was first person. I, you know, that's really an interesting point. I think even as we talk about this, I think you definitely can have a meta narrative with some themes as you think about identifying what goes into this history and what doesn't. I still think, though, with a memoir, it's a very clear first person view. And what you decide to go into that, that memoir is very selective <laughs> and it fits some sort of agenda that you have as you write that. Whereas typically a family history doesn't have that quote agenda, unquote. So Dave, here's a question for you. And I don't know if you can answer it on the spot, but I'm going to ask it anyway. 
So if you were to write your family history, what would you include? What would the primary stories be, be? And how would that be different than if you wrote a memoir about your own life? What would maybe the meta narrative be? I'm going to be very vulnerable here for a second. I would almost have to write two separate histories, one from my father's side. They immigrated here from Russia, actually, uh, Moldova, and what is now called Ukraine. Uh, they call them Germans from Russia, but they formed these Lutheran enclaves in, in the southern part of Ukraine and then in Moldova in the 1800s, they moved there. And then in 1906, my family came here on my dad's side. But there's also the line of my family. And I have done some work in Ancestry.com on both lines. And I can get great detail on my dad's side and great detail on my mom's side as it relates to her father, but I can't with her mother. It's like a black hole. There was a, there was a rape in the family. And so you can only go back so far. And it's, it's, it's the biggest black hole I've ever run into in terms of research. So a family history with my mom would probably start with her mother and her birth, maybe uh, my grandmother, or maybe even with just my mom and her persistence and there's just so many wonderful things about my mom, her education and her music, and she has such a wonderful history, but I, it, it, it's not as far back. So I do think, you know, we're talking about this and maybe we'll get to this also later. There is a starting point. You have to kind of pick a starting point and that starting point, it might be your life, your birth. It might be that of your parents. It might be one generation, two generations, but you generally have to pick a starting point. There are some people that have histories, obviously, back into Europe, and they can track it practically to the Ming dynasty, right? I'm being facetious here, but, but most of us can't. So you do have to kind of, where, what's the starting point? My dad's side, it would be 1906, probably. And with my mom's side, it might be with her because there's just not a lot of information prior to her life. I wonder if some people go into writing family histories because of those black holes that they want to create form around, right? So they know that there are these black holes in their family history, and they think maybe if I dig just a little bit deeper, I can make sense of this black hole and find some of what actually happened and bring it to light. Do you think that that's true, Dave? The moment you do that, though, the moment you risk offending a lot of people. And so you have to make a decision whether this, what goes in and what, what doesn't go in. And maybe that is a great segue to our second point, which is, I do think you need to confirm who is the audience for this. And so that's our second point. Our first point is knowing the difference between a family history and a memoir. And while there's some things that overlap, there are differences. And then the second point here is really confirm who the audience is. And, and we talk about this in other types of writing. So for example, if you're writing a memoir, your audience is not just your family or probably not your family at all. They don't want to read your memoir. But with the family history, you really do need to confirm who it is. Is it family members? Is it just for your children? I mean, honestly, most people won't take the time to read it. I mean, you write all this and your family won't even read it, or they'll read it after you're dead. So the question is, who is this for? That really dictates, and you'll find, you, you'd like to put everything in there, but you find that you're keeping things out based on who's going to be reading this. That's really so true. And I think to that memoir that we helped that gentleman write, and he wrote it specifically for his grandchildren, his, yeah. his sons, but mostly for his grandchildren, because I think he had this fear that he was going to pass away before they were old enough to understand the importance of Judaism to him and his family and why it was so important for them to lead a, a kosher life. So for him, it was definitely for his grandchildren. And he, he had some extra copies printed. And I think he gave it to some people in his Orthodox Jewish community who found it interesting also, but that wasn't his primary audience. It was really for his grandchildren. I, I think you're right. And I think there were a total of 50 copies that he had printed. So this, this wasn't put up on Amazon. In a sense, we use the definition of publish to make public. In a sense, this was not made public. 
And in many ways, you could argue that these family stories are not made public. They're made public, let's say, to family, but not made public to the larger world. It's not that you don't want anybody to read them, but they're really for that tight community and really defining who that is. So confirming who your audience is, you, you need to think through that. Who are you writing for? And in addition to confirming who your audience is, which is our second point, our third point is you really need to identify your why. And this goes hand in hand, I think, with audience because you're writing for a specific audience. And the next question that you'll ask is, why am I writing for this audience? And you have to identify your why with any writing project. It gives you the energy to move forward for one thing. Think about it. What if you didn't tell your family story? What if it was being lost? Is that why you're writing it? Is it so important to you that you have to recount the story because you're, you are afraid that if it goes one more generation, then it will be lost forever? Is there something so important that you want future generations to know that you need to capture it now? That will give you energy to move forward. So you need to identify your why. It also can help, I think, Dave, if you have a deadline. Sometimes we have these family moments in time celebrations, like a 50th wedding anniversary or a family reunion where we want to present maybe this family history as a, as a remembrance. And there, there, there could be some real unifying things that happen through presenting this family history at one of those events. Or some people just want to get it done before their, their parents pass away or somebody important passes away in their life so that they can get those stories. And I don't know, Dave, do you think your parents would enjoy reading the stories if you were to write the family history? Would there be some gratification in that for them? I think if I told them in a certain way, there would be. One of the challenges when you're writing these stories is everybody has to be a hero. So if you tell the story, for example, if I tell you the story of 1906, when my ancestors came over from South Russia, they call it South Russia. I hesitate to say it was, the, it was Ukraine and also Moldova on my grandmother's side and in the Ukraine on my grandfather's side. So it's a heroic story of coming to America, having nothing, living in a sod house, having kids that died. My grandma, my great-grandmother, she was this woman who would give birth to a child at 1 p.m. in the afternoon, and then by 5 p.m. she'd be out putting up hay. But she was this incredible person, right, who had this incredible persistent. So if you look at the women and the men on that side, you're telling this heroic story of how they persisted. You're probably not telling about there is some alcoholism, there's divorce, there's all sorts of, you know, all the stuff, right, that, that families have. And every family has those. So back to your point, what part of the story do you tell? So this is why the purpose is really important, I think. You want to tell often heroic stories of something that was overcome. That's a big thing. So I was thinking about my brother, Matt. He's, a, he's an oncologist. He's a world-famous cancer researcher and breast cancer. And at some point, I'd love to tell the story when he found 400 samples of women's DNA under the desk of another scientist at the institution that he was at. He was a fellow in oncology, he found the sample and he had this idea for a study and it launched his career. And then they got the DNA and they couldn't extract the DNA from these, these samples because it was old method of preserving DNA. So he had it shipped to University of Michigan and they, some modern extraction that was able to pull that out. But it, it was the impetus that launched his career. He became literally, arguably, not famous because that's not true, but it launched his, his career as a researcher and he became especially pharmacogenomics. So that would be a story that I hope that at some point we could tell. So what specifically is that? It's the story of Matt's success as a breast cancer researcher. And so that's a very specific story that's about him. And it starts with maybe not his schooling, but starts with that story, which is when he's this fellow, no name, at this institution, discovers these 400 samples, and, and, and how it went from there. As you're talking, I can almost envision a structure for your family history. Maybe start with your, 
your grandfather, then go to your father, like one chapter on your father, then one chapter on your brother, one chapter on, I mean, you could even just focus on the male heritage. That might be interesting, an interesting way to narrow it. But rather than trying to put everybody into one chapter, right, you could, you could narrow it down just by individuals in the family. That is so interesting that you say that because I think it gets to the question that if you're trying to write stories, how do you limit the stories, yeah. right? And so that's one way. We're going to just talk about the males. Maybe another idea, so we're just talking about the females in the book and their narrative and education and, and what they did giving birth. One of the criticisms of my family, we know so much about my dad's history. And so there's always kind of this ongoing it's not a joke, but it's kind of a, those stories have been well told yeah, on right. my father's right. side and not as much of the stories on my mom's side. And so there's kind of a hole there and for good reason, right? As I mentioned earlier, but these are all decisions that you make on the front end. And, and it's really important that you know, you're going to have to make some decisions as you make the decision to write this family history. So when I think about this third point, identify your why. I think that most people's why will be to inspire. Most people aren't going to go into writing a family history to bring people down, right? And so no. it probably is to inspire the next generation. And so it is going to be full of heroism and overcoming obstacles and perseverance, like you said. And that's okay, because that's something that people want to read, right? We, we use our language to move people to to do great things. And I think that's what a family history can do at its best. I certainly am not disparaging. It just doesn't have the same kind of a narrative arc that a memoir would have, or a piece of fiction would have, or a piece of narrative nonfiction. So with a narrative arc, you start in one place and then you end in a different place. And there's all this tension and problems and challenges that happened that the, that the protagonist overcomes over time. And so your narrative arc probably is just a little bit different if you're telling a family history, and that's certainly okay. I think of my parents' story. They wrote, I would classify it as a memoir. It was about my dad's accident when he was hit by a bus and he was in the ICU for a long time, became partially paralyzed. And so it was, it was co-authored. So there were some chapters from my dad's perspective and some from my mom's, but it covered the period from the accident all the way to like four to five, 10 years following the, the accident and how it impacted their lives and all these moments along the way where, man, it was really, really tough. And you saw the accident kept on cropping up and how they persevered. And so that had a definite narrative arc and it was very focused on one one thing, right? So it was the accident. It was the accident and how he overcame and how my mom dealt with it as a life partner. You said something funny though that earlier about sometimes your your family members won't read it. And they gave this to my my son and their other grandchildren, thinking, oh, I'm gonna move them to really become faith. There's a faith element to it, but I'm gonna move them to be really faithful. This is gonna be my legacy to them. And up until last year, none of them had read it. I think Davis <laughs> finally picked it up and read it last year. But again, you know, you have this idea of what your book is going to do, and then it doesn't actually happen the way you think. So quick question for you. Two things. Was there anything in the book that was new to you that you didn't know? And when you read it, what did that do for you emotionally? There were details in the moment, the day of the accident that I didn't recall. So for me, it was looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was happening. And I was there, but I don't recall any of that happening. Some of it I did, but lots of it I didn't, right? Because we came to the accident site right after it had happened and he was in the back of an ambulance and we didn't know anything that had happened. So to read from his firsthand experience, what happened in that three minute period was really gripping. And I got to understand firsthand how terrifying it must have been. And so, and I think it also just his struggles with his paralysis and his perseverance through that and having to give up so many things that he loved before. I draw on that personally as I think of some of the things that I've lost throughout my life. 
I look back to his story. So I do think it's something that I can anchor myself in in times and feel an affinity with my parents, which is, which is a gift because you don't always feel close to your, your parents. So I think it can deepen relationships in a really meaningful way. To me, that just shows that the purpose of that book was fulfilled, right? Hearing you talk about that. Could you just tell our audience just a little bit what the accident was? Yeah. So we like to say that my dad was actually ran over by a bus and that, so he was a pastor and there was a a bus that they were trying to sell. And so somebody was interested in buying the church bus and they came and somebody else from the church had gotten into the bus to start it up. My dad was in front of the bus with the hood open because he wanted to show the guy who was looking at the bus, the the mechanics and the engine and all that stuff. And the guy behind the wheel, I'm not exactly sure what happened. This is where I get a little confused still, but it was in gear and it moved forward and it it pinned him into this fence that was directly in front of the bus. And then the guy panicked and he backed up and my dad was hooked on to the, the bus and pulled him under and dragged him across the parking lot and ran him over. So he was crushed. Pelvic was crushed. Part of his spinal cord was crushed. Luckily, it wasn't the one that made him completely paralyzed. So it was wow. a really scary time. <laughs> wow, what a story. I'm so glad that they were able to write that. Even if the kids don't read it right now, at some point, you don't know, on some Saturday afternoon after they're bored of something, they see the book and they, they dip into it and it inspires them in some way. So I, I think that's so wonderful yeah. that, that they did that. Let's jump to the next point. So we have three points already. And the first is to know the difference between a family history and a memoir, which I just think is so important, confirming who your audience is, which seems patently obvious, but it's, it's important to think about that. Identify your why, which I think is so important. And then what's the fourth one, Melissa? It's to start with what you know. And so when you start thinking about your family history, it will feel completely overwhelming, right? How do you begin to sift through however many generations you're feeling called to sift through, right? Where do you start? And so I think our big idea here is that you start with what you know. What are the stories that are at the forefront of your, of your mind? What stories have been told and retold so many times that you could recount them to your neighbor or your child with, without even thinking about it? And then start to think of those other stories, maybe that aren't as well known, but still come to mind and, and write those down and recount as much as you, as you can, even if they're incomplete. Then start identifying some of your earliest stories. And through this process, you'll begin to think of other stories that pop up. That's just how it is. So really, it's, a, it's really about a time of thinking back and writing down those stories, not incomplete, but just jotting down, oh, this story, this is a great story. And maybe even jotting down next to it, you know, the importance of the story is A, B, and C. So I would imagine, Dave, that as you begin to write down those stories and what the gist of them is, it's going to pique your curiosity like, oh, but what really happened there? Who, who was with my dad in that moment? Or what was he doing before that? Or was he in school at that time? Or where did they live? All of a sudden, you'll start to have all these questions that you'll want to then go and dig deeper for. What I love about this point is starting with what you know it will suddenly thrust you forward into the project because the moment you start writing down stories, you'll start thinking, oh, that person's still alive. And we have our next point is about conducting research, but it'll start to give you some direction. I was just thinking I was with my father who is actually just turns 88 this month. And, and we went down to, we have some land in South Dakota. And so he likes to take me down there and tell me the old stories, you know, about everything. And we were in this pasture, which we call it the tower pasture. And it's just, it, it's, it has one of the high points in the area. And we found out that there were, it's where the, the Sioux Indians would camp. There's in circles 
in the area as well as, and they would camp on the top because it was this high point that they could look around almost 360 degrees and, and, and watch out and, and notice if there were any people coming or going, or maybe it was bison, I don't know. But while we were down there in this pasture, I was reminded again when Uncle Johnny, would have been my great uncle Johnny, died in World War II. And my grandmother, so this one had been in 1944, was notified, imagine rural America, right? So she was notified by a neighbor who had been to town, town is maybe 40, 50 people, maybe 100 people, but they had been to town and there was news at the post office. So this person went to the farm and my dad was there when this neighbor told my grandmother that her brother was killed in a foxhole in France. And so now if my father had not been alive, but he just talked the grief, the weeping and the sadness, the wailing that Uncle Johnny had been killed in World War II. So, but I remember him telling me that, and if, if he had not been alive, I would have had that question like, like who actually told you that Uncle Johnny died? Did they have the army come out? And, 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 but it had been done through the, I think through the postal service. If I remember correctly, I might not be remembering that correctly, but I do remember that a neighbor was the one who told my grandmother because she was not the parent, right? She was the, she was the sister. So when you say start with what you know, you start with some of these stories and then that will lead you and will give you some really good impetus for our next point, which is conduct actual family history research. I think if you're going to tell your family story, you should probably conduct a little bit of research, right? Yeah. Well, all good writing demands research. We're big proponents of doing your research, but with historical accounts like your family history, you'll need to do a specific type of research. There are different kinds. There's the narrative research, and this is all about interviewing people who are still alive, who have the firsthand accounts like you were talking about, Dave. And so it's really important that you come to those interactions, say you set up an interview with them and you come prepared. You have the basic story, but come prepared with, with the questions about the gaps, like, well, who, who said that or where, what happened in this moment? I'm not really clear on that. Ask them to fill in the gaps. And if you don't know where to start, I was just thinking about this, Dave. NPR has this great little program called StoryCorps. And if you go to storycore.com, they provide you all these questions to talk with your family to get at the good stories about your family history. And that would be a really great place to start because good stories start with good questions. And I was just looking at their site and they have some really great conversation starters. So say you want to create this family history, this record of your family history, and you want some good stories to go in, but you don't know where to start. Maybe just start a conversation and ask some really good questions. That's great. So what's the name of that website? Story Core. Yeah, that makes sense. C-O-R-P-S. Yeah. So it's like this question is, how has your life been different than what you had imagined? That would lead to something really good. Who has been kindest to you in your life? There are just some great questions. There are some good prompts, and that could lead to some really great stories for your history. I would also say another thing to do as you start to do history is actually have somebody research you and interview you because you have all this stuff in your head that you wouldn't probably write out unless somebody prompted you it's like when we often talk about writers for nonfiction, like for example business books if you interview an author you're going to get much better content than what he or she could do herself or himself because they're not thinking about these stories and nobody's asking follow-up questions so one of the key elements here is to have somebody interview you that can really ask good questions because that's going to be so productive, I think, not just evoking stories that will be good for you to analyze, but it'll lead you to go, oh, I need to know more about X, Y, and Z. Then there's also secondary research, which I'm sure most people would think of doing when they think of doing a historical account of their family. And that's Looking at family records like letters or family trees at the front of the Bible, right? Or immigration records. 
or you can even look at ancestry.com. That's a great resource. They have a service that researches things that are not in the records that we typically think of. So that that's actually like a little bit like mining for gold, right? And it's a trail that you find one thing and you go down another trail and it, it can be really fun, but it can be pretty laborious too. Can I just say something about Ancestry.com? So I've gone on there, I've given my DNA and and I have done research on this black hole on my mother's side that I, and there it's impenetrable. It is absolutely impenetrable. And, and so I contacted Ancestry.com and I said, hey, you've got my DNA. I see these relatives that you have these like, you have 20% this, 10%, 14% related to this person. And so you can ask Ancestry.com to conduct what arguably is investigative and forensic research to identify next of kin. So if, let's say that I was persistent in my, my decision, which I've thought about. I've asked my brother and my sisters if they'd be interested. It's expensive. It's about $4,000 for us to go to Ancestry.com. And I asked him, I said, if I wanted to know who the person was who did X, Y, and Z, because I can't find, I just can't find genetically, I can't find it. And there's nobody that has, has given up their DNA. Could you find this for me? And they looked at my profile. They said, hey, give us permission to look at your profile. Look at my profile. They go, yep, we could find this for you, probably. And so, so in this moment, I'm asking the question of myself, do I want this information? And so I've talked to my mom and I've, and I just said, this is something that, that you want me to do. And she was very ambivalent about it. And so I've decided as of right now, I'm not going to do that. And so, but there's these decisions that you made, but ancestry.com is a great resource. It's kind of expensive, right? But you start to find out some things. There's not so many stories there, right? But you see the connections and you start to see newspaper, you connect, you can, there's a connection there between Ancestry.com and I think it's newspapers.com, but you can connect with old clippings, which is kind of cool. You'll see certain things that you may not have had before. So Ancestry.com is a great resource. It's a little bit pricey. Those newspaper clippings, that leads to our other point about you may have to do some historical research. So news <laughs> clippings are a great way to kind of figure out what was happening in the time period of the moment in time that you're writing about, right? So say your grandparents like mine lived through the Great Depression and they survived the Dust Bowl. And you want to know more what it was like back then because my grandparents, for instance, aren't aren't around, but I want to write about them surviving the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression. I might go and do some actual research of some of those news articles about what were happening to farmers during that period and what did it really look like and feel like and what were the options? And that would, I think, help you identify what your ancestors were going through, even if you don't have that firsthand account. I think that would be so rich to, to layer into the actual writing of your stories. This is what's called a setting. And we, we talk about the acts method of, of writing stories. And so there is a setting to every one of your stories. And I think knowing more about what happened in the culture and, and the time, layering that into your story, that's, a, that's another important piece of research that I think helps give you context to the story that you're telling to, your, to your, either your children or, or whoever you want this history to be for. Because it's the difference, right, between showing and telling, right? So if you tell your great-grandkids about... I lived through the Great Depression. They have no, they have no understanding what that's really about. So you have to paint a picture for them so they understand. Wow, I have it so good. You know, this was really difficult. So again, even though you're doing maybe a, a chronological account of your family's history, it's still important to engage the reader's imagination and to show and not simply tell. Yes, that gets us to number six, which is use storytelling techniques to bring your history to life. And what you just said about the setting and like, for example, that example you had about the Dust Bowl or the depression, use that. Those are, that's storytelling techniques just by adding in that kind of detail. I, there's a story that I have on my dad's side. I think it was during the, it was during the war and my dad was, 
I believe he was nine. So that would have been 1943. And it was a hot, windy summer in South Dakota. So they had a house on the farm. And then they had where the cattle were at. There were corrals behind the house. And the 13-year-old cousin of my, my father, so my father's first cousin, she was in the house, in the house, and she left the kerosene stove on. She had cooked lunch and then left the kerosene stove on. And then she fell asleep and the curtains caught fire from the kerosene stove. And while the entire other family, the rest of the family had their back turned, working cattle in the yard, the whole house went up in smoke and killed her. And my dad has a memory, and I don't know if it's a manufactured memory of his aunt picking up his daughter when her hand and flesh was on her hands. Now, that's kind of gruesome, but it's one of those stories that shows just how hard life was in on the prairies during those years. And, and so telling that story by setting it up as a scene by the kind of year it was, how hot it was, you can kind of create those details. It's kind of almost a form of fiction writing, right? But you can create those details pretty quickly with some, you know, research on what the weather was like and how much rain they had that year. So anyway, you can really use these storytelling techniques to really add richness and layers to your writing. It reminded me of a story about my grandfather, who was a very disturbed man. And I was thinking about the memories I have of him. And he was a World War II veteran. And I remember one day sitting on the sofa with him and pulling out this black and white crumpled picture. And it was a picture of all these dead German bodies piled up. And he was such an awkward man. Like he was so proud of being able to show this to us. And he kind of giggled because I think he was uncomfortable by it. But I just, that was such a vectoring moment. And it was such a real moment because I'm like, oh my gosh, look at all these bodies piled up. And he was there. And it helped me, I think now looking back on it, understand this man had some trauma in his life. That was a really traumatic experience. But anyway, even looking at photographs like that, I think can, can help you see details or remembering that particular moment with my grandfather and how, how uncomfortable he was. And he didn't know how to convey this very serious content with his seven-year-old granddaughter. It was very interesting, but there was like a certain pride because he survived, yet a certain discomfort because it was death. It was very odd. What I love about this, as it relates to this podcast and talking about storytelling and family history, you connected an experience you had that is from a long time ago with a photograph. And I think that is so important as we write our family histories. You see those connections, you look for details in that photograph, you might connect memories like you did. I think that's really a rich, a rich example of discovering and of discovery as you do this research. All right, Dave, do you want to talk about our final point, point number seven? Well, this one is determine what is too personal. So So did I just violate that by talking about my grandfather? (laughs) No, I thought it was great. (laughs) He's dead. (laughs) It's a great segue. Back to my grandfather, the other story that I have about him, he was a very disturbed man, but his brothers, when he passed away, said, yeah, Paul, he would sit on top of, on top of the barn and he would hold his breath until he passed out and he'd literally pass out. He was just an off man, right? And so you connect that with all this other behavior down the road and you're thinking there was, he probably had some undiagnosed anxiety disorder or depression, which then in the context of my life helps make sense of some of my own issues that I've dealt, dealt with, you know, oh, maybe it comes from the Hoblitzel side, right? So anyway, all that to say, every family has those stories of brokenness. Maybe it's alcoholism or depression, divorce, mental illness, rape, as in possibly the fam- your case. Dave, of your family, tragedy affairs. I mean, every family has those. And some of those things you might not 
feel comfortable sharing and maybe you shouldn't share because it could paint the living in a very unflattering way. And you don't want to damage family relationships. You want to bring your family closer together, right? I I think so. I think the last thing you'd want to do is to write your family story and have everybody hate you (laughs) and avoid the next family reunion. So, um, no, I don't like family reunions that much. (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe it's a good reason not, you know, to make sure you don't have to go to the next one. I do think anytime you lay down a sentence, whether you're writing a memoir, whether you're writing nonfiction, whatever it is you're writing, or whether what we're talking about, just not just, but writing your family story, you're making choices about what you keep and what you don't keep in on that writing. You're making choices because you're, you're putting these words into the real world on printed page. And so you do have to determine what is too personal. I'm going to tell the heroic stories. I'm going to tell the story of discovering the, the four, 400 samples, DNA samples that were used for this study that had a vectoring effect both on women's lives, but also on my brother's career. But I'm not going to say this other thing. I, I have nothing in mind. I'm not saying there's something else, but I'm just saying <laughs> You're making, you're making decisions about what's, because it's about storytelling and story writing. What stories stay in and what stories don't go in. And I think you have to make that judgment. And it, sometimes I don't, I think it's not easy. I think it gets back to your purpose, right? What is your purpose for writing this story of your, ha- of your family and making sure that you stay true to that as you make decisions on what to cut, what to keep, and what to tell? I think memoirs typically include more non-flattering stories because they're funneled through your perspective. And so I think that people allow for that more like, well, that's through her perspective, right? And it's what people expect often in memoirs, something a little salacious, something a, a little tangy, right? So, but if you, like you said, if you don't want to hurt your family, if you don't want to cause division in your family, then maybe don't include those unflattering stories. Can I give you two salacious anecdotes from people who've gone through and done the DNA ancestry.com. So my wife has a friend who did it and found out she had a half sister. So her father would frequent this diner and come to find out that he had had an affair with a waitress at this diner and she had a half brother. And, and so of course that narrative came out after both her mom and dad were dead. And another story is good friends of mine, both Jenna and me, her father was the wife, her father was a pastor, right? And so they knew that his, that he had been unfaithful to her mom through the years, even as a, as a pastor, right? She knew this, but when she did the ancestry.com DNA thing, she found she had a half sister from when he was in high school. So he fought in the Korean War. And so nobody knows what really happened. Did he get her pregnant and then suddenly have to leave? Or did he get her pregnant, know about it, and then left because he wanted to escape it? Or did he never know that he had a half, that he had a child with her? So all of a sudden she gets this email out of the blue. Hey, I found you on blah, blah, blah. I realized we've got X amount of DNA. You know, that means that we're closely related. We're, you know, half siblings. So anytime you start to think about telling your family story, you do have to make decisions about what is the purpose, what goes in, what doesn't go in, and how do I want to tell that story? I think you said it best, Dave, when you said, are the stories elemental to understanding your family history? I think that's a great question to gauge it. Are they elemental? Are they necessary so you understand fully your family history? Or are they just there because it, maybe it is a little bit saucy, right? And, and right, right. You have, have a grudge against somebody and you want to call them out. But is, is that really going to be beneficial in the long run? And is it really necessary for people to understand your family history? So. I I think we only say that because of the great responsibility that you have when you make that decision to write your family story. It's pretty heavy. And since very few people are going to do that in your family, it's a great responsibility. And I do think your purpose needs to be so clear and, and your audience needs to be so clear 
And if it is to harm the family, you really need to write fiction and not do that. I think I'm a big advocate of, as I've gotten older, to really protect the family relationships and to preserve that as much as possible. So I do think we would never want to talk about writing your family story as some sort of means to to hurt your family, but really to ennoble your family, to inspire your family, to encourage your family. When I think of all the stories on both my mom and my dad's side, just the heroicism, how fierce they were. I want I want my kids to know that. And that is a great note to end on. And if you can be part of that, what a wonderful thing you can do for your family. Yeah. All right, Dave, shall we turn to our words of the episode? You're going to love All right, you go word. first. You're first. You're first. <laughs> okay, I'm going to spell my word first, and then I'll pronounce it. It's A-I-L-U-R-O-P-H-I-L-E, and it is lurophile. It's a funny word, but I chose it because it means a person who likes cats. So I'm an allurophile. I'm an unabashed allurophile. And my favorite account right now on Instagram is Foster Kitten Diaries. And I spend way too much time watching kitten videos. And it's because I'm an allurophile. <laughs> I have, again, again, I, Melissa, I have never heard of this word. Again, this came across on like dictionary.com, my Instagram feed, and I screenshot it because I thought that's who I am. And there's a sophisticated word for a crazy cat lady. So I'm I'm turning the crazy (laughs) cat lady on its head by calling myself an allurophile. (laughs) Well, I could see you writing fiction and you have this character who's, she's a 79 year old woman. She has 13 cats and she uses her money from the, her pension money from the government to buy cat food. And, and you could use that as the allurophile. Yeah, exactly. She's an allurophile. That would add a layer of sophistication to the writing if you did it correctly. So anyway, I guess you could call me a crazy cat lady, but I'll call myself an allurophile. What about you, Dave? What's your word of the episode? I love, I love that word. I can't even say it. Allurophile. Allurophile. Yeah. I love that word. So mine is it's actually the past tense version of pinion. So pinioned is how you would say it. And it means to tie or hold the legs or arms of someone. So he pinioned the limbs of his opponents. That means to bind the arms or legs of someone. You would say that obviously of a wrestler. Mm-hmm. Wrestlers would, you know, mm-hmm. they do that. They pinion someone's legs or arms. I, I'm not sure where I got that word. I, I think I read that word in a, it may have and been it, fiction. I'm not maybe sure true where crime? I got that I can, I can imagine it being used in a true crime piece because an abductor, a kidnapper might pinion the arms of the child or the woman who they pick up on the side of the road. That's, That's kind of dark, word. isn't it? But it's, it is dark, it's but, but it, it's a great use of the word. Rather yeah, than zip tied, he pinioned the limbs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, what a great time talking with you today about family histories. I hope that some of our listeners are inspired to at least begin thinking about some of those family stories and the why behind they want, why they want to tell their family stories. So we hope that you, you move forward and you start that process. I think that that is it for today, Dave. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write your family history. 